Greetings, St. Croix Valley and Points Beyond. It's Saturday, September 25th, 2021, and River Radio is ready to rock and roll. Coming to you from our studios in beautiful Midtown Marina on St. Croix, this is River Radio. I'm Jim Maher. And I'm Gail Knutson. Much thanks to our technical director, Matt Quast, uh, Quastlove, of course, also our musical director, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Our thanks as well to Elaine Larson, who updates our show page on the Marine Library website, and Laura Lee DiLorenzo, who handles publicity. The program is produced by Jim and Gail, and presented by the Marine Community Library, which resides on the traditional, ancestral, and contemporary homelands of the Dakota and Anishinaabe peoples. Today on the show, we'll be talking with Amy Hagstrom-Miller, founder, president, and CEO of Whole Woman's Health and an outspoken advocate for abortion rights. She'll discuss the recent law that took effect in Texas limiting abortion access and Ginger Schulich-Porcella, Executive Director and Chief Curator of Franconia Sculpture Park. This show airs live here on the Zoom platform, of course, and you can follow our podcasts wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Well, Gail, we're back. We are back from summer off, and glad to say, I, I want to mention in podcasts, that we kind of monitored that throughout the summer, and people still were going back and listening to the podcasts of our uh, some of our 26 previous programs. So it was, that was nice to see. Appreciate that was that nice very to see. Much. Yes. Uh, one big change our regular listeners will have noticed, we've got new bumper music. It's uh, Turn the Radio On. It's performed by the suburbs. Music and lyrics by Chan Poling. And uh, I want to thank Matt Quast, who uh, was able to arrange that with Chan, who uh, some of you also know from the New Standards. But uh, hey, we're uh, rocking a little bit there. And um, but at the same time, we want to say thanks to John Gorka. Yes, we do. And and also, I think we want to up the little paycheck there for uh, Matt for for getting all this together for us. So appreciate it. We'll double his salary. Sure. I think. Okay. But uh, (laughs) okay, thanks, Matt. (laughs) Wow. He's really working hard today. Um, anyway, we, we want to acknowledge and thank John Gorka for giving us the use of his tune, Iris and Pearl, for our first two seasons, and also some music for a couple of other things we did, and we really appreciate that very much. Uh, well, Gail and I got to warm up our act a little bit about two weeks ago. We were, I don't know what you would call us. They said auctioneers, but it wasn't quite really an auction in no, the yeah. strictest sense of the words, but we were doing something for the Wild Rivers Conservancy fundraising event two weeks ago in Osceola. Yeah, we were in front of a microphone and we liked that. <laughs> yeah, we felt comfortable there. So we thanks for giving us the opportunity, but that was great. Uh, here in Marine, among the big news items, and Gail will be talking about this on the news later, is um, our road work in our downtown area is now pretty well completed, and it's great. We've got really nice new asphalt and pavement down there. But, but boy, we got a controversy. Oh, I'll tell you what, coming down Broadway, and if you know Marine, you come down the hill, like from the church, come down the hill, cross 95 hit the stop sign, take a right and take your quick left to go to the general store. And the striping seems to be backwards <laughs> coming from that direction. So it's going to be interesting, especially when we have a town full of cars on the right side of that road. So you can't make swing a big right and a left into the, um, into the parking area in front of the gen. Yeah, this is, you know, here in Mayberry folks, we're, we're concerned about this, but it's uh I mean, I, I understand the uh, thinking behind it because I went, wait, I thought that striping would be going the other way because most people are coming in and would come in naturally the other way. Apparently, it had to be angled striping according to the, I think, the DOT requirements since they help fund much of the project. But I understand people are coming up that way on the road technically, and you got to turn the way you're driving in. So I, I, there's logic spray to paint. it. But... Black spray paint. I'll take care of it all. <laughs> I'm hoping they, yeah, we're all hoping that they use kind of easy uh, wash off paint that is going to be away or faded away pretty soon. So 
Uh, one more thing, uh, as we're kicking off things this week, Gail, you kicked off uh, Marine Documentary Night on Thursday night. Yes, that was great. We had about 90 people in the audience, which was just super. We were outdoors at Burris Park. Um, the doc was Hunger Ward, which was an Oscar nominee and short documentary this year. And Michael Sherman, who's the producer, had flown in that afternoon and did the Q&A, which was really super. So, And then, of course, next month we've got... Um, a documentary. It's, it's going to start being the first Thursday of the month. So October's will be co-op wars about the early days of starting up co-ops. So it should be really great. Um, it's also a short documentary and we're kind of keeping them short um, because we're going to host this one in the village hall. And we're going to have a question about that coming up on the show, but you'll, you can hear more or learn more by going to the Marine Facebook page on that or the library website. Yeah. But it it was nice to see Doc Knight back after after a year's absence and understandable year's absence. And and we yeah, we got to see. I mean, we're playing everything by ear these days when it comes to Doc Knight, when it comes to library programs, exactly how we're going to do everything. And uh, with that, Gail, I think that leads into our first question. Yes, it does. How do you feel about attending events this fall and winter in the Marine Village Hall, such as library programs or Marine Documentary Night? And we have five um, answers you can choose from. First one, I'm ready to attend as if things were back to normal. I'll attend if the crowd size is limited. I'll attend if there's a masking requirement. I'll attend if there's both a crowd limit and masking requirement. I will stay away from indoor events this fall and winter. And now here's Jim. We're happy to welcome as our first guest of the new season of River Radio, a St. Croix Valley native, Amy Hagstrom Miller. Amy was born and raised here in the Valley and is a graduate of McAllister College. If you followed any of the news about the abortion debate over the years, there's a good chance you've seen or heard Amy on the national airwaves, such as NPR and the Rachel Maddow Show, or seen her quoted in many national publications. She's an unabashed champion of women's health, particularly abortion rights. Amy is founder, president, and CEO of Whole Woman's Health, an organization that operates clinics that provide abortions and gynecological care in five states, including one in Minnesota, and most notably for this conversation, four in Texas. The latest issue in the ongoing abortion debate was centered in Texas. Several weeks ago, Governor Greg Abbott signed into law Texas Bill SB8 that allows individuals to file civil lawsuits against abortion practitioners and anyone who aids in what is considered an illegal abortion. By definition under this law, abortions that occur primarily after the sixth week of pregnancy are considered illegal. In an immediate appeal to try to prevent the law from taking effect, the Supreme Court chose to let the law stand, at least for now, which on the face of it was somewhat surprising as it runs contrary to the standing constitutional law under the 1973 Roe v. Wade ruling. Amy's been one of the people out front nationally on this issue. Amy Hagstrom-Miller, we welcome you to River Radio and back to your home area of the St. Croix Valley. Thank you so much. It's delightful to be here. Amy, this is not your first confrontation with attempts to limit access to abortion in Texas. The terms of this are particularly harsh with the six-week restriction. Can you tell us what this has meant for young women in Texas who would be considering the possibility of an abortion right now? Sure, this law is one of the most restrictive laws I have seen in my career. Um, it is designed to ban abortion um, for the vast majority of people who are seeking to end their pregnancy safely with um, you know, help from trained medical professionals like us. And uh, most folks don't even know they're pregnant um, before six weeks into the pregnancy. This is two weeks after you miss a period is, is the time frame we're talking about. And so, um, you know, we're in this position now of having to turn away uh, the vast majority of people who, who need our help. The six-week restriction is centered on the uh, presence of a heartbeat at that point in the process. Why do you think that's not a justifiable consideration of fetal viability that should be considered in terms of the timing of an abortion? So fetal viability uh, is considered uh, at 24 weeks, um, that's that's the viability standard, the line that was drawn by Roe v. Wade. Uh, that's the point in time where a pregnancy can live without the support of the pregnant person. 
outside the pregnant person's body. And so six weeks um, is remarkably different than, than 24 weeks. Um, the cardiac activity that's measurable in an embryo at about seven weeks into the pregnancy um, is not what we consider a heartbeat, um, what most people sort of think of when they're thinking about anatomy. Um, that cardiac activity um, is measured, you know, in a in a pregnancy that's that's not even a fetus at that point in the pregnancy. And I think this really points to some of the strategy that the anti-abortion movement has has picked up um, really after Whole Woman's Health had a very big victory in the Supreme Court about five years ago, where we were able to demonstrate that many of the restrictions placed on abortion don't actually advance women's health and safety. Um, the, the health and safety outcomes are worse, actually, from restrictions like this. And since that time, the anti-abortion movement has really pivoted away from a concern for the pregnant woman and a pregnant person, pivoted away from claiming they have health and safety in mind, and really turned their focus onto the fetus, um, and really tried to discount and even ignore the context in which um, the fetus exists and ignore the pregnant person altogether. And SB8 is one of those examples. There are many that have bubbled up since um, since the whole women's health standard was was established in the Supreme Court a few years ago. You mentioned the 24 week standard from Roe versus Wade. Uh, so in your experience or the experience of your clinics, what what's the common time frame, most common time frame that abortions occur? Sure. So I think, you know, there's lots of um, sort of misinformation, um, you know, associated with abortion care in this country. And, you know, that, that's been a strategy of the anti-abortion movement really since the beginning. Um, you know, one of them is, is associating abortion with young people. Um, the vast majority of our patients, over 80%, around about 80%, especially in Texas, are parenting already um, and are juggling work and childcare and families um, just like just like the rest of us, right? And the vast majority of people um, have abortions in the first trimester. Um, most folks want to have an abortion as early as possible once they learn that they're pregnant and they have made a decision that they can't sustain that pregnancy um, for you know multiple multiple reasons that people choose abortion. And so you don't see people sort of learning they're pregnant at six or seven weeks and deciding to wait a few months before they can have an abortion. Um, and I think sometimes it's framed as though um, people are being cavalier or they're, um, you know, not acting in a prudent way, which couldn't be farther from the truth. Most of the people that we serve who end up having a second trimester abortion, uh, keep in mind it's about 10% of the national population that would have an abortion over 12 weeks, uh, are folks who are dealing with multiple um, barriers, multiple oppressions in their lives. Um, oftentimes economic disparities, uh, racial disparities, um, you know, they have something change in, in their um, sort of family life or lifestyle, like they lose a job or they lose a spouse or something changes in the course of their pregnancy um, that really, you know, points them um, to an abortion maybe that they didn't plan to have earlier in the pregnancy. So I think it's, it's really important for us not to sort of overgeneralize. Um, the reasons that folks have abortions and just really kind of focus back on trusting um, the woman, trusting the pregnant people to, to choose a course for their lives um, that is best for them and the, and the folks around them. And for us to be empathetic and supportive and compassionate as we connect people to the healthcare that, that they deserve. So Amy, I'm just wondering, I think about some practical aspects of this of, of this Texas law and wondering, are there HIPAA related issues to identifying women who maybe have obtained an abortion that went beyond the, uh, the fetal heartbeat uh, standard or, um, and I'm just wondering how, you know, how are people identified or how would that work or what it, what is happening on the ground down there? Sure. So there is a, a real culture of surveillance and, um, dare I say, you know, domestic terrorism that has been surrounding uh, abortion clinics, you know, for decades in this country. And this SB8 law just ramps that up in a way that's almost um, hard to fathom. Um, you know, if you if you really think about the sort of toolbox that this law puts in the hands of um, you know, vigilantes out on the sidewalks who um, 
whose goal is to harass and intimidate and um, you know, surveil um, folks who, who are seeking abortion care services. Uh, one of the pieces about SB8 I think is important for folks to know is that the pregnant person is the only person who is not um, suable under SB8. All the people around um, that person are at risk. Um, so anyone who works in a clinic who's providing care, whether it's the physician or the nurse or the counselor or medical assistant, um, those of us in the community who might be helping somebody we know or love access safe abortion care from you know, a family member who's helping um, somebody afford the care, somebody who gives someone a ride, um, a, an abortion fund who might um, give someone uh, funds to afford the abortion. Uh, it brings into question anybody who can be defined as helping somebody seek abortion care. Um, so really, this is this is something that really has all of us at stake. It's not just about those of us providing care, but really calling into question anybody who, um, from the position of these sort of vigilantes and, and this sort of bounty scheme, um, could be thought of as helping somebody seek abortion care services over six weeks, which is like um, extremely early in a pregnancy. It's about 90% of the, of the people who are coming to us, um, we're having to turn away who are over that that six week mark. And we read a story this week now about a doctor who performed an abortion in Texas, and he was upfront about it, wrote a, uh, an op-ed about it in the Washington Post, uh, in defiance of the lies, presumably to set up a test case situation to go through the court system. Did you ever consider pursuing that through one of your own clinics? Sure, of course. Uh, I, I know Dr. Braid well, um, and I admire him for his for his bravery and for stepping forward and and you know following his conscience um, many of us had the same reaction uh, when this bill was first signed into law uh, a few months ago uh, i think you know it's pretty standard understanding nationally that a, a restriction on abortion at six weeks is unconstitutional even the supreme court in its uh, recent sort of shadow docket ruling on on our whole women's health case trying to challenge sb8 um, said in its you know, majority decision, we're not weighing in on the constitutionality of a six-week ban here. Um, we're weighing in on the sort of you know, enforcement mechanism. And so uh, many of us feel um, not only called to do this work in a, in a compassionate way, we are highly trained medical professionals who have taken an oath to do no harm and to use our skills to help um, those in need. And so this goes against our not only feelings and beliefs, but our, our, our training and our calling um, to help people. And so many of us um, considered defying this ban. Um, and many of us don't consider an abortion over six weeks to be something that I would frame as illegal or criminal by any stretch. Um, and the sort of mechanism of action and the sort of um, punishment scheme from these, uh, you know, the bounty and also sort of the legal scheme that's set up in this law uh, really stopped many of us in our tracks. Um, because of how many lawsuits could be brought, even just with one um, one abortion performed um, in defiance of the ban, uh, you know, all clinic staff, uh, medical assistants, you know, nurses, counselors, anybody um, helping that that patient, everybody could be sued. Um, multiple lawsuits, even for one abortion. And so most of our people, you know, we don't have lawyers, uh, you know, our clinic staff can't just hire counsel and, and you know, fight back against um, this kind of system. And so, um, you know, for many people, the risks are too great. Um, I, I'll point out also that the majority of, of the abortion care workforce, folks who are working in clinics are also parenting, raising families, navigating the stresses of, of the pandemic um, and are um, women of color primarily. And so folks are dealing with multiple, um, you know, marginalized sort of statuses in Texas as they consider defying a law um, that puts the power of, of the law really into the hands of, of these vigilantes. And so it's, it's a pretty scary thing to think about um, as a clinic worker or a physician in Texas. I'm speaking with Amy Hagstrom Miller, whose firm oversees the operation of a number of clinics that provide abortion services. Uh, Amy, uh, presumably this case 
uh, will find its way to the Supreme Court for a full hearing, I would think. And then there's also the case out of Mississippi that is going to have a hearing on December 1st, where they had effectively banned nearly all abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. So what are your thoughts about what lies ahead? Where does this, where do we go from here? Where, and it seems like it's clearly headed to the Supreme Court where obviously this, the, uh, the atmosphere there has changed dramatically in the last two years. Right, so the Supreme Court uh, that we have right now in this country is very different than the Supreme Court whole women's health was in front of um, just, just five years ago. And I think um, a couple of weeks ago, I had the um, remarkable um, opportunity to be a guest at the White House of a guest of Vice President um, Kamala Harris. And she convened a roundtable of a few of us who are working on the front lines in Texas and the only provider left in Mississippi and um, some of the folks of which you're, you're talking about to really talk about what, what life is like for us on the front lines, what our patients are experiencing, what we're experiencing, and to really convey from this administration that they have a whole government approach. Um, that when we don't get relief from the judicial branch, um, such as we got in the whole women's health case just a few years ago, when we have this sort of shadow docket situation like we had a few weeks ago, and we have um, a very different makeup um, um, now in this Supreme Court after the, the former presidents um, being able to confirm three new justices, that there are other branches of government. And, and the vice president reminded us that there's the executive branch, there's the congressional branch, um, and that multiple paths can be taken um, to get justice for, for folks on the front lines in Texas and to preserve uh, the civil rights and human rights of pregnant people and women in this country. And so I was encouraged uh, by that meeting. Um, I am encouraged that the Department of Justice um, has taken on suing the state of Texas. Right. Um, and I'm encouraged that that we also in, in our lawsuit have have other options um, to pursue um, in order to restore folks access to abortion in Texas. And, you know, I think we're all worried that the Mississippi case might chip away at the standard um, that Roe established and that has been upheld for almost 50 years um, in the court systems throughout this country. Uh, you know, the Mississippi um, papers in the, in the case said just that. Um, they're, they're interested in litigating Roe. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's a scary time in this country to think that the, this Supreme Court could have that kind of power. Uh, there are bills in Congress. One of them is the Women's Health Protection Act that I believe um, Nancy Pelosi is going to bring to the floor this week, um, which is a congressional path of codifying Roe and also ensuring um, much broader access for people to have access to reproductive, reproductive health care writ large, including abortion care services, and to try to codify those rights in Congress rather than litigate them over and over and over again in the court system. So I think there's lots of things that, that we can look um, look forward to happening here in the next months and years, but um, things are very different. They're yeah. very different than they were. Yeah, that's to say the least. Um, so uh, on your website, you say, we're committed to destigmatizing abortion and creating safe spaces for all people. Abortion opponents have been uh, incredibly active now for decades, obviously, as we've been talking about, and they, they seem to have a lot of momentum, especially with the Supreme Court on their side. Do you think there is more of a stigma surrounding abortion today than was the case, say, 20 or 30 years ago? So I think the stigma that surrounds abortion is manufactured. It's created by those who oppose abortion as a tool, um, as a way to silence people, to shame people, to sort of claim a majority when it couldn't be farther from the truth. And I think when we look at stigmas, whether they're about race or they're about class or they're about abortion, they're oftentimes created um, and, and weaponized in some ways to keep a group of people silent, to keep a group of people powerless, to, to shame people. And so part of my work in abortion care um, broadly is to um, eradicate the shame and stigma that's been manufactured around abortion in this country, to talk about access to abortion as a moral and positive good, um, to understand that access to safe abortion makes our communities safer, it makes our families healthier. Um, and whether anybody has an abortion at any point in their life doesn't matter 
as much as knowing that access to controlling your reproduction allows women to dream a future for themselves that's truly equal and, and truly autonomous. Um, and I think we have to talk about abortion um, differently, not through a framework of tragedy or a framework of, of regret or some of those frameworks that have been created by our opposition, but really acknowledge that, that many of us have very strong feelings and beliefs about abortion. Um, I have yet to meet anybody who got pregnant in order to have an abortion. Um, and I think we need to have open and honest conversations about those feelings, but don't replace our feelings and beliefs with scientific evidence, medical facts, and access to human rights for all people um, that shouldn't sort of be changed by a certain group in power, um, but should actually be something that, that we can count on um, more broadly in this country. So, Amy, before we wrap up here, I'm just wondering, you mentioned the Mississippi law chipping away again at, at Roe versus Wade. The, the Texas law seems to be more like taking a sledgehammer to it. Is there a, a potential that there's legislative overreach here and that potentially that that maybe turns the tide of uh, public opinion, which I, I realize public opinion generally backs Roe versus Wade, but but that maybe there's some reaction to that? Right. I think, uh, you know, I like to believe that that they've gone way too far here. And, you know, having, you know, been born and raised in Minnesota and then lived, uh, you know, a significant chunk of my life here in Texas, I think sometimes we look at Texas in a way that we think, oh, that's just Texas, right? Uh, couldn't be further from the truth. Like, even in Texas, SBA doesn't represent the majority of people's feelings and beliefs. It's extreme. And I feel like on some levels, the Texas politicians are like not to be outdone by Mississippi, right? Like Mississippi's got a 15 week ban in front of the Supreme Court. We're gonna try to get a six week ban in front of the Supreme Court. Um, and this sort of competition, it's like a race to the bottom between Mississippi and Texas in many ways, you know, maternal mortality, health outcomes for pregnant people, et cetera, right? And so I think um, the extreme folks in the anti-abortion movement, um, are very public about trying to get the most restrictive thing that they can in front of this Supreme Court as quickly as possible. And um, I think that's what we're seeing here. And um, I agree with you. I like to believe that, that they've gone too far. Um, I think there's been a remarkable awakening nationally um, and folks really um, outraged at, at what's, what's happening on the ground and the impact of this kind of political football has on real people's lives and real people's futures on the ground. Well, Amy, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with our River Radio audience this morning. Absolutely. It's delightful to talk with some folks from where I, from where I grew up. All right. That's Amy Hagstrom-Miller, a St. Croix Valley native and leading advocate for abortion rights and founder, president and CEO of Whole Woman's Health. We're now, happy to welcome as our... And now we'll wrap up poll question number one. So... Um, I was, uh, let's see, our question was, how do you feel about attending events this fall and winter in the Marine Village Hall, such as library programs and Marine Documentary Night? And 52% of you said, I'll attend if there's both a crowd limit and masking requirement. All right, that was the leader. 20% uh, said, uh, I'll attend if there's a masking requirement. And uh, it was about two and 3% for the others. Um, only uh, three, yeah, or 12%, I'm sorry, 12% said they'll stay away from indoor events this fall and winter. Okay, and that, that's kind of interesting. I actually was expecting it might be something higher than that, but yeah, um, yeah well, that's good. So that is good because we, we sure would like to put some things on this, this fall and winter. And we're planning to do that, as Gail mentioned, with another documentary night in less than two weeks. Uh, hey, I just wanted to follow up on the uh, interview with Amy with a couple of other things. Um, you may recall that last spring we had on uh, Emily Bazelon, who is the great legal writer for the New York Times Magazine. She's got some great insights into the Texas case. If you're interested in learning more about the legal perspective, they can be heard on the podcast that she does for Slate called The Political Gab Fest. In an episode from a few weeks ago, she explains why it was stunning to her that the Supreme Court did not block the Texas law, at least for now. And in this week's show, she explains some more about some of the legal actions that could be forthcoming. And it's a pretty interesting discussion. I have links to that on our show page, so uh, feel free to check that out. 
In a few minutes, Gail's going to talk to Ginger Porcella, Executive Director and Chief Curator of the Franconia Sculpture Park. But first, it's time for a roundup of area news. And here's Gail with all the scoops. Well, some good news here. The application for the Marine Village School has been approved by the Minnesota Department of Education. The Marine Village School is scheduled to open in late August of next year in the traditional Marine Elementary School building. In the meantime, organizers will be getting ready by buying desks and equipment, hiring staff, raising funds, and asking volunteers for help. Look for folks from the Marine Village School at the Marine Mills Folk School Party that's happening at the school grounds next Saturday, October 2nd from 10 to 2. The Folk School is celebrating their third anniversary with free classes, sheep herding, and much more. Find the link to their website on our show page for more information. You'll also have the opportunity next Saturday, October 2nd to join Mike Eisensee from the Carnelian Marine Watershed District and Marine City Councilwoman Wendy Ward for a free, fun, and educational tour of the four new stormwater ponds in downtown Marine. You'll learn why these are needed, how they benefit the town and river, how they work, get maintained, and how you can be a part of helping them function properly. The tour, once again, is October 2nd from 9 to 10.30 and starts at the Marine Gazebo. Another fun event next Saturday the 2nd is Marine's all-volunteer fire and rescue department street dance and fundraiser going on from 2 to 6 p.m. in downtown Marine. The suggested donation is $9 per ticket. Children 12 and under are free. Additional donations are always welcome and greatly appreciated. The Marine Fire Relief Association's goal is to raise $10,000, which will be used to support department operations. The City of Marine is still awaiting a court decision regarding its short-term rental ordinance. A ruling by the Washington County judge hearing the suit is expected in early October. The city is the defendant in this case, but has filed a counterclaim asking the court to order the plaintiff to cease violations of the short-term rental ordinance, including rentals on the property without a license. May Township is currently seeking a volunteer to fill one vacancy on the Planning Commission. This vacancy will fill an alternate term ending January 2025. The position's compensation is $25 per meeting attended. The applicant should be able to attend Planning Commission meetings held on the fourth Thursday of every month and must be a full-time resident of May Township. If you're interested, submit a letter to Town Clerk Linda Tibbetts. Big River Farms, the community farm out at Wilder Forest, is holding a volunteer event this coming Thursday, September 30th from 4 to 7 p.m. They are looking for some helping hands to put the farm to rest for the winter. There are outdoor projects, opportunities to connect with farmers and other organizations, music and food, including a local food swag, swag bag. Check out their link on our show page. On September 21st, the City of Scandia presented the Scandia Good Neighbor Award to Gabriel Pollard in recognition and appreciation of his efforts in the search for a missing girl on June 15th. Neighbors, Scandia Fire and Rescue, the Sheriff's Department, and helicopters were out in full force trying to find her. Gabriel spotted the missing girl in a swampy area where others had not been able to see her and did so before it turned dark. The Scandia City Council has a joint, had a joint meeting over Zoom with their new sister city, Melirud, Sweden. Both cities talked about ways they could connect through museums, schools, and farms. According to Scandia Mayor Christine Majewski, their Swedish counterparts were quite open. The two cities look forward to ongoing communication. Scandia is happy to once again have a cafe in the Village Center. Your home cafe is open Wednesday through Sunday from 7 to 2 p.m. for breakfast and lunch or lunch and breakfast. Both are served from 7 to 2. The Scandia City Council passed a proclamation acknowledging October 4th as Cinnamon Bun Day in Scandia. So people traveling through the Village Center can expect to be given a yummy cinnamon bun to start their day. And Jim, why do I think our tech guy, Matt Quass, will be pitching his pump tent the night before so he can be the first to get a cinnamon bun? I might be with him. I don't know. I think, wasn't that the day um, we, we were going to start doing something different with our diet? I, yeah, I think that's we, may, right. yeah, we may have yeah. to delay that one more day. But We, uh, might, we might have to. Yeah, our, that our, sounds too good. 
our uh, correspondent from Spain, who is our daughter, is is home for a few weeks and very exciting for her to be here. I mean, the sense of anticipation she had last night, knowing she'd be able to see River Radio live in person was... Oh, boy. Oh. <laughs> yeah, she just couldn't wait. But anyway... Uh, all right, let's go to our next poll question. And uh, this one has to do with booster shots, which were in the news uh, this week. Uh, we know that the CDC now has approved booster COVID shots for those who receive the Pfizer vaccine if they're 65 or older or in certain high-risk occupations. Where do you stand on booster shots? Uh, I already received one as one option, and <laughs> I've got that up there because I've talked to somebody who did even though they hadn't really been approved yet. I'll get one when I can. I don't qualify yet due to age, job, or type of vaccination I received. I'm not worried about getting a booster shot. So those are your choices there. And here's Gail with our next guest. Ginger Schulich Porcella currently serves as the executive director and chief curator of Franconia Sculpture Park. She holds an MA in Sociocultural Anthropology from Columbia and a BA in Art History from DePaul University. She was previously the executive director and chief curator of the Museum of Contemporary Art in Tucson, executive director of the San Diego Art Institute, and the executive director of Art Connects New York. She is the director of the forthcoming Foreground Midwest Land Art Biennial taking place across the Upper Midwest and in tribal communities in the summer of 2022. Her exhibitions have been positively reviewed in a number of publications, including the New York Times. And in 2015, she was named the Voice of the Year by the San Diego Press. Welcome, Ginger. Hi, Gail. Thanks for having me. Well, that's quite an impressive resume that you have. So I've got to ask you, what lured you to Franconia Sculpture Park? Well, you know, I really was drawn um, by the possibility of having a contemporary art space in rural America in this specific place and time, um, a place that's free and open to the public, a place where anyone can build a relationship to art and really breaks down the barriers for participation. Um, you know, I previously worked at a number of museums and I really thought that the institution has this physical barrier for participation, but also a mental barrier. And I like that Franconi is a place where pretty much anyone can come and see themselves reflected in the work. Well, can you describe for people, especially those that haven't seen Franconi Sculpture Park before, when they come there, what are they going to see? Sure. I think that there's really something for everyone. And we really see that through the diversity of our visitors. There's work for children, for people from diverse backgrounds or other um, countries that come here, um, for people of all ages. So you'll see interactive works, you'll see site-specific works uh, created by artists from across the globe. You may see artists making work on site. Um, a lot of our work really speaks to the intersection of art and ecology. So it's really about integrating sculpture and installation in a site-specific way. So it's integrated with the landscape. Um, we have 50 acres, about 100 sculptures. Um, placed within uh, native prairie grasses. So it really is um, an experience for people to, to have this you know, singular experience walking around, exploring the landscape and, and sort of coming upon art. Now, is this particular sculpture park unique in this country or in the world? Well, I mean, there's sculpture parks throughout the United States and throughout the world. I do think what sets Franconia apart, though, is the way that the, the artwork is situated in the landscape. Most sculpture parks are, um, you know, to put it nicely, I say plop art. It's art sort of plopped down on these like perfectly manicured lawns. And that's not what you're going to find at Franconia. You're going to um, be exploring the landscape, um, learning about um, the, the plants and the ecology. We keep bees at the park. We have a whole pollinator program. We work with the University of Minnesota on a plant management program. So you're going to learn a little bit about the plants and the landscape while you're also experiencing art. So I don't see a lot of um, sculpture parks. I actually haven't seen any that really do that in the way that we do. Let's back up a bit. Can you uh, talk a little bit about the history of Franconia Sculpture Park and how Franconia specifically got picked for that honor? 
Sure. Um, about, well, 25 years ago, since we're celebrating our 25th anniversary today, uh, a group of artists um, wanted to start a sculpture park here in Minnesota. They wanted to have a space that artists could create work that was outside, that was open, um, an open studio space and open to the public to visit. It was really modeled on um, the vision of Socrates Sculpture Park in Long Island City in New York, which is um, Mark DeSuvero, who's a well-known sculptor. Uh, we actually have two of his installations at the park. He started that 35 years ago. I think they just celebrated their 35th anniversary yesterday. So these artists were inspired by um, the model of Socrates in New York City and, and wanted to do something similar to that here in Minnesota. And you mentioned um, 25th anniversary, which is today at Franconia Sculpture Park. So what's in store for folks who just want to venture up your way to help you celebrate? Sure. Yeah, we have a lot going on today. Um, as I mentioned, we've been doing a lot of work with the University of Minnesota, their plesky, uh, pesky plants department. So we're doing a bio quest, bio blitz with them. So they'll have um, ecologists on site. Um, helping people sort of identify different plants and animals. It'll be cataloged um, through the University of Minnesota. Um, I'll be giving a tour to anyone who's interested at two o'clock of all of the new sculptures that have been created uh, this year in 2021. And then after that, people can meet the artists um, that are on site that are creating work and, and some of the artists are coming back. So you can meet them. Um, but we have some really exciting things. Um, at 4 p.m., we're opening a new exhibition in the Mardag Gallery, which is in our new building, Franconia Commons. And that's an exhibition um, curated by Kier Brown. He's a, a current fellow at Franconia and a fellow of the Emerging Curators Institute, who we're partnering on, um, who we partner with to present that show. At 5 p.m., we're unveiling a really stunning brand new public art project that we're really excited to announce. Um, so you'll have to come and see what that's all about. Um, it's with an artist, a Somali artist, Yasmina Sidiak, and it's going to be unveiled on the corner of Highways 8 and 95, right by the park. At 6 p.m., Nerdy is performing. And if you don't know who Nerdy is, he's a really great uh, local hip hop artist, family friendly. Um, really funny and should be just really exciting. And at 7.30, we're doing a fashion show in Franconia Commons um, featuring the work of Josh McGarvey, who goes by the name Euseldine Fridays. He's kind of like Minnesota's own Comme de Garçon. So very <laughs> edgy, interesting fashion that's really about um, collage, sound collage, uh, fashion collage, and really inspired by um, Franconia itself. And then to top it all off, we'll have projections by a returning artist, Wesley Cree, and uh, local DJs from the Twin Cities. And we'll have food, we'll have drinks, and hopefully we'll all have a lot of fun. You know, Franconia Sculpture Park's always been free. So are these events all day gonna be free as well? They're free, but uh, we do charge $5 parking um, for the event. So everything else is, is free to enjoy. We do have some uh, ticketed events if you wanna buy into some VIP opportunities like front row for the fashion show or meet and greet with Nerdy. But other than that, it's free for people to attend. I'm talking with Ginger Shulik Porcella, who currently serves as the executive director and chief curator of Franconia Sculpture Park. Now, Ginger, you mentioned Franconia Commons. For years, I saw that building that was there that I knew the artists and residents stayed in, but this is a new building that uh, you opened last year. Can you tell a little bit about what you'll be doing there? Yeah, yeah, we opened the building in September of 2022, exactly a year ago today. <laughs> so um, it's been really great to really see how the building serves the community. Um, it's primarily a visitor center to help orient the visitor experience, which for us is really important because for the last 25 years, there was really not a public facing um, you know, space for people to enter into the park or for us to engage with our visitors. People had a relationship with us, but we didn't necessarily know who our visitors are. So it's been really exciting to get to know who our, our visitors are and to talk with them. It's open nine to five uh, Monday, uh, seven days a week. Um, in the winter, we have uh, 
we're open Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays only. We have winter hours. But we also have the gallery there where Kier shows opening. It's called the Mardag Gallery. We have a fantastic gift shop that has been incredibly successful um, beyond our wildest dreams. <laughs> we have a multi-purpose space where we have performances, lectures, film screenings. Um, we use it a lot for rentals. Um, with a really great back patio that includes like a balcony space, fire pit. It's a really cool gathering space. Um, really nice bathrooms. I know the public is very happy that we have very nice bathrooms. Oh yeah. <laughs> and um, we've been working with a three hours coffee to open a coffee shop that has been a bit postponed because of the pandemic and you know staffing shortages, but uh, we're on track to get that opened um, early in 2022. And a little food too you'll be serving? We'll have food, we'll have bubble tea, which I'm very excited about, coffee, pastries, yeah. You have several artists and res residents there right now, so I want to know how do you find them and how do they find you? Yeah, um, well, we do an open call that we, you know, publicize widely ac across the globe. We get about 180 applications a year for just um, 25 slots. So it's a pretty competitive program. Um, we work with outside uh, curators to select the artists and residents each year. So we have four different categories. We have uh, artist family category where artists can come with their children and we enroll them in our summer camp so the parents can make work while their kids are um at camp we have a fellowship opportunity where artists get paid a little bit more to make a substantial work of art at the park we have emerging artists who are a lot of them are just out of grad school or undergrad and this is typically like their first public art experience or resident residency experience and it's more process-based we do a work exchange with them too so some of the people you may see working at franconia commons are actually our artists and residents and we also piloted a writer's residency last year that was incredibly successful. And we got about 50 applications for that this year. And we just selected um, the writers that will be coming this winter. So the writers come and have a, a solitary experience in the park in the wintertime. And it's just a great way to keep the space activated throughout the season. So it's, it's great to have artists all year just creating work at the park. How many artists can you have at one time? We can have nine at a time. It's a nine bedroom house. So um, it's always pretty busy at the park. <laughs> I bet it is. Um, those sculptures, I mean, they change. Um, there's new sculptures. I remember the first one I saw, which was, it had to be at least 20, 25, yeah, almost 25 years ago when you first opened. It was a rocket made out of garbage cans. I loved it and <laughs> I was hooked. So where do some of these sculptures go if they're not on the grounds, all of them from 25 years, do they get sold? You know, it's interesting. We actually just sold and installed a piece for a local collector yesterday. So oh. they do get sold. I mean, we don't sell them all the time. They're pretty expensive artwork. So we sell maybe one or two pieces a year, but the artists, sometimes they install them at other venues. Um, our agreements with the artists is only for two years. So after two years, we work with them to see if it's something we want to keep longer, um, if it's something they want to take, or sometimes they just want to deinstall the work. I mean, the Minnesota uh, winters and even summers can be pretty brutal on outdoor artwork. So two years is really, for a lot of work, sort of the lifespan for an outdoor sculpture here. <laughs> and um, you mentioned um, you keep bees on the property and that, that you've now opened it up to some writers for artists and residents. You've got a lot of other things going on besides just sculptures. Um, yeah. You host a farmer's market, you do a film series, and you do, of course, the hot metal pour, which is very fun. And I saw there's going to be an Elm Tree Story booth. Can you talk about some of those other events that you do? Yeah, I mean, we do we do a lot of public programs at the park. In the summertime, we usually have at least an event every weekend. So it's a pretty active space. I mean, in the summer, we get about 30,000 visitors a month. Um, and we found that, you know, a lot of people coming to the park are coming because they, it's not even about the art. It's about having an experience outside. So. You know, some of those new programs that we've started are our most popular programs, like the film series and the farmer's market are much more popular than some of the programs we have been doing for a really long time. So we've really, you know, spent time getting to know what our visitors want and, you know, getting feedback from them. And, and we've seen that people just really want to spend time outside. And 
use the art as a backdrop for these other activations. We do a lot of performance events at the park. We had a couple theater groups here this summer and a large summer solstice performance festival with artists from across the globe. So people just really like being able to see the sculpture park in a new way. And when you activate it through these other programs and events, it gets you to look at sculpture um, in a way that maybe you haven't before. So one final question, Ginger, and it has to do with the focus or the mission of the park moving forward. Do, how do you see the next 25 years? Yeah, we've really retailed our focus to be about the intersection of art and ecology. Um, previously, it was on big sculpture. And yes, we still have big sculpture at the park. But for us, it's more about um, you know, having a more intimate experience with art outside and more site specific work, more land artwork. Um, and so it just, it has a different feel at the park now. And we really want people to enjoy being outside. And I think particularly during the pandemic, we heard that from so many people that it was great to just have a space where people could walk around safely, and be outside and still have an experience with contemporary art um, when you couldn't go inside places. And we don't see our visitorship diminishing at all. Um, we see our visitorship continuing to grow each year. So obviously we're doing something right. <laughs> yes, you are. And you'll see plenty of people today, I'm sure. Yes. Well, thanks for talking with us today about the park, Ginger. I appreciate it. Thank you, Gail. I appreciate being able to talk to you as well. That was Ginger Schulich Porcella, who currently serves as the executive director and chief curator of Franconia Sculpture Park. Today is their 25th anniversary, so head on up for some fun times. Yeah, that really sounds like a great opportunity to go up there. And um, let's quickly uh, give you a summary of our poll about booster shots. Uh, there were some of you, 8%, who actually jumped the gun and already got one. Uh, but the vast majority, 81%, said, I will get one when I can. There's uh, about 8% of you who don't yet qualify due to age or other reasons. And uh, only 4% who say, I'm not worried about getting a booster shot. So we seem to have a pretty vaccine-friendly audience here on River Radio. Hey, Gail, I'm really wondering, I, I can't believe they didn't ask you to be in the fashion show. I mean, that just seems no. like it's right down your alley. But I got my phone on right now because I know I'm going to get that call. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. We'll, sure. we'll, we'll stand by for that. I'm sure they need somebody in a t-shirt. <laughs> all right. Well, we made it. We kicked off another season of River Radio, and we appreciate all of you who listened to our live stream this morning and participated in the polls. And thanks to all of you in podcast land as well. We really appreciate you listening to us. And hey, those of you who do listen to the podcast, if you want to leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, particularly if it's a good one, uh, that would be great. If you have thoughts, comments, or ideas for guests you'd like to hear, drop us an email at info at marinecommunitylibrary.org. And thanks again to all our guests, Amy Hagstrom-Miller and Ginger Porcella. If you missed any of this, check out our podcast and be sure to tell your friends about it. We take you out right now with The Suburbs. And we'll be back in two weeks on October 9th with our next program. Until then, I'm Gail Knudsen. And I'm Jim Maher. Thanks for tuning in, everybody.